Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algeman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. Today, I'm joined by Keith McCormick. Keith has a wealth of consulting experience in predictive analytics and data science. His work with clients has taught him that analytics isn't just about technology, it's about effective analytics teams. Keith is authored for Wiley and for LinkedIn training. He has a bunch of wonderful experience, and I'm excited to have him on the show. So, Keith, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Me too. So there's there's a lot we want to talk about today, but why don't we take just a couple minutes, give a little bit more background. I did a very quick intro about the kinds of things you're interested in, but give a little flavor for what you've done in, in your career and kind of how data has been a thread and, and how it plays a role in what you do. Sure, of course. So uh, my journey in, in this kind of work uh, started in the um, in the late 90s. I was contemplating a PhD, uh, psychometrics. I'm sure everybody's super excited to hear more about that. Um, and I got a chance to do some statistics software training for SPSS, which a lot of people know about from college classes, um, sometimes college classes even that they, they dreaded a bit. But it, I thought it was just going to be something on the side to help pay for grad school. But next thing you know, I was driving from you know Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, where I live, up to the Arlington office just out outside of DC. Sure. A lot to the point where I was going every month, then more than once a month. Next thing you know, I was training 40, 50 weeks a year. And obviously the grad school thing wasn't going to be compatible with that. But that's kind of started me on my journey because back then statistics was sometimes the first skill that you did. But SPSS bought a smaller company that made up uh, one of the first predictive analytics workbenches. There's a bunch of them now, uh, Nime, Alteryx, there's a bunch. Um, this product still exists as well. But that got me into machine learning and machine learning led me into consulting. And that was that combination of training and consulting was it for the first 20 years or so of my career. And more recently, I'm working more with heads of teams because they've got questions about hiring and what software should we use and all kinds of stuff. So rather than building the models that I did for years, mm -hmm. I'm helping people run their teams. That's awesome. And and so I, I, I'm a fast, like I find the whole notion of team building and technical spaces broadly just interesting, but I think there's a, a, a specifically uh, interesting thread in, in this data science world with how it's gone from, you know, you had that one, you know, number crunching statistician somewhere, you know, in, in the cave next to the database people, um, you know, it, it, for years. And now you've seen such an emphasis on analytics, such an emphasis on creating models and, and understanding with data that now, to your point, you have teams of folks that are doing similar kinds of things. And, and is that a, is that a correct pattern? Is, is Have we seen a growth in the number of people doing this kind of work? Yeah, there's there's no question. So when I started out, it was pretty close to what you described. The the solo, we uh, a lot of us called ourselves data miners then, you know, so it was the solo person, um, often someone that developed that skill set somewhat on their own, often with some of a stats background, which isn't emphasized as much now. Because Python and R, you know, it's so commonplace now. But, you know, people forget that in the 90s, Python existed, but not as a machine learning tool. And R didn't haven't really taken off yet, would barely existed. So you had that solo person. And a lot of times they were creating these models in the time that they could find. 
And then they had to kind of evangelize their work, you know, within the organization. And that's why, uh, you know, we started a trend that still continues to this day that only a small fraction of models are deployed because a lot of times they're built with this, if I build it, then they'll come mentality, you know? <laughs> so that clearly wasn't working. So um, the team started to develop and there are challenges with doing the teams as well. But when I was starting out, um, one of the reasons I, I think that I abandoned going the PhD route is that there weren't PhDs in data science or in machine learning or AI. I mean, there were a handful, you know, now there's an explosion of them. Right. So, and it's been enough years that those people with data science certificates, data science masters, even data science bachelor's degrees, even data science related PhDs, they're all starting to enter the market. So the team approach is much more common and the big debate that nobody's figured out is where this team belongs. Is it paired with BI? Really quite different. Yeah. They share the same data to an extent, but really quite different. Does it belong to IT? Should data science report up to the CIO? No one's figured that out, but it's definitely a team approach now. That's interesting. I, I never realized that there was so much debate in the data science teams and where they fit in organizations. I'm used to like the data management space where we love to debate whether the CDO, a chief data officer, a chief analytics officer should roll up to the technology organization or somewhere else in the firm. And there's so many debates on that. Part of me gets very tired with those kinds of debates because I'm like, you can structure it how you want to so long as you give them the tools to be successful. If you do the opposite and structure it perfectly, but then give them no ability to succeed, it kind of doesn't matter. And so I imagine it's the same thing for uh, data science teams. Um, one of the things that uh, we talked about uh, in, in our, um, you know, determining what topics we would want to talk about today. You, you have a, we had a, a couple of bullet points and we'll get to some of them, but the one that jumped out at me and, and, and like, I was like, oh yes, we're going to talk about this thing is the statement that analytics hiring and retention is broken. So we've talked about now we have more demand, right? There's bigger teams inside our organizations. We have a, a, a greater knowledge that this stuff is is useful and important to our companies. That's why we have teams of people doing it instead of individuals. And like you just explained, we have a greater supply. Now we have a whole bunch of people with PhDs. It's almost a requirement to have a PhD if you want to be called data scientists in a, in a lot of companies, right? And so we see this increase on both the supply and demand side, but we're missing something. And this this notion that the the hiring and retention of these data scientists and, and analytics teams is broken. Can you can you tell us why that is and, and what you've identified is, is the challenge that we need to overcome here? Sure. Well, well, first we can just kind of look at the at the symptoms, right? So why would somebody make this claim, even if they're not an insider, you know, uh, to uh, these organizations and, and visit with a lot of clients? Just look at a bunch of data scientists and their LinkedIn. And you'll find some incredibly talented folks that over the last five years have been with five different organizations, right? You know, 11 months with one, 14 months with another, a lot of this bouncing around. And I've got to think that if someone's really happy in their role and their organization is happy that you, know, you wouldn't have five years in a row, a change in organization. So something's obviously going on. Yeah. Uh, it can be really frustrating to figure out, you know, who's reporting to who, but there's one particular trend I think that you'll notice when data scientists report up through IT, which is probably the most common. It's not the majority, but it's probably about 30 or 40% of the time. Hmm. There is a natural focus on how many tools are we going to support as an IT organization. So there's a tendency to say, look, you folks over in data science kind of have to get your act together. You're going to have to decide 
are we going to be an open source shop or we're going to be, you know, we're going to use a vendor, um, you know, tool, what's going on there. So they'll feel that that's the first decision to make. And then HR is driven by that. So for instance, a lot of organizations might conclude we're going to be a Python shop. So say we, you know, this is the, it's become almost a joke within the data science community. You know, you need, uh, 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 five years of Python, you need five years of R, you need five years of TensorFlow. And somebody will say, oh, you know, HR team, you know, TensorFlow has, at this point, it's almost five years, but even three years ago, they were looking for five years of experience in a tool that only been out for a couple of years. That's, <laughs> that's how it's kind of become a that joke. That sounds right. <laughs> the, pr the problem with that is who's going to do the best on let's say a coding exam. I have a buddy that was, um, uh, been in the business for 30 years, a little bit, uh, just a little bit longer than me, and was uh, applying for a VP or senior VP role, don't, re uh, don't recall. He was given a Python exam for that role. I mean, I was dumbfounded. I just thought yeah. that was bizarre, right? But what's going to happen if you're going to have a complicated Python exam before you even get to your first interview? Right. You're introducing an age bias that wasn't intended, but that you're going to get. Okay, because let's say you let's say you're trying to find somebody with 25 years of uh, healthcare analytics experience. I've done some work in that area, certainly not a specialty of mine, mm -hmm. but that's an area where SaaS, you know, was uh, was largely dominant for quite a while. So if you find somebody with that many years of experience, they're probably going to be competent at Python, but they're probably not going to do as well on a multiple well, it wouldn't be multiple choice coding exam that a 23 year old right out of a master's program would get. So ultimately, do you want your entire team of five or six people all, all to be these top scoring Python coders? Or would it be kind of nice to have at least one person on the team that has a decade of experience? It's not an intended consequence, but that's what ends up happening. So uh, that's, uh, that's the kind of problem that I think is leading to turnover, obsession over tools, not over the concepts and the uh, the experience. So, so you bring up a, a very interesting point around uh, testing for specific coding languages as a prerequisite for any you know meaningful conversation, especially with senior folks. And I think that I, I think you make a very good point around how this is unintentional age discrimination in many cases, which yeah. you know is, is problematic for for a number of reasons. Not to mention, it may keep you from finding the best candidate for the job that you have open, right? right? And so yes. that's that's a yeah. real problem on top of you know, other, you know, pitfalls that, that are there. Cause it's, it's, it's really important to realize, Hey, the goal should be here to find the best candidate for that opening. And if our processes are not leading us to that answer, then we definitely have a problem. I want to play a little devil's advocate though, and push back just a little bit to see what, if we can get to an answer, because I'd say sure. I've also experienced when I'm hiring for technical roles that very reasonably could have an amount of, um, you know, technical swapping, I'll call it, where where somebody has done C sharp, but they haven't done Java, you know, to use a, an example that people may be familiar with, you know, but there's so many relatively transferable technology skills that the specifics are less important than the general knowledge. However, I need to make sure that candidates can do something in reality at a technical level versus I've, I've seen plenty of people who will um, market themselves as a deep technologist or deep 
deeply skilled person who cannot have you know, they cannot actually do the depth of analysis or depth of skill set that they represent and the hiring process is not very well attuned to weeding that out and anything absent of you know a choose your own adventure of technology in the hiring process to say okay pick your technology you got to pick one of these and then do it that's a lot of upfront investment for an organization especially a smaller mid-sized organization to try to make in their um recruiting process and in the vetting process what's the answer here how do we how do we solve for both ends of this well you know i, I as an undergrad i studied uh, computer science so being able to think like a programmer i absolutely think is a valuable skill yeah. so you mentioned the kind of pick your uh, technology I, I i would say as a general rule of thumb if you're going to ask um, a programming question during hiring to see if they've got the technical chops mm -hmm. If the question is so specific to a technology that it can't be answered in pseudocode, yeah. then you're, you're probably going in too deep. Yeah. You know, uh, now part of that is what are the different roles going to be? You get into like data engineers and so on, but the person who's going to be building the model, I need that person to have this mix of skills. They have to be able to talk to the business so they're solving business problems, not just going off to do a science project. So if I'm asking a question of them that's so specific to the technology that it becomes a grammar test, mm -hmm. then I think it's going in too deep. So I would I would ask the question in a way that they could answer with pseudocode. What is a what is a programmatic approach that you could take to the problem? But I I'm, I don't care about whether or not they know about a package, you know, a Python package that came out six months ago. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think if you do things at kind of that that logical layer as opposed to the physical layer in the in the data world you know and and i've often asked you know if, if there's a data architect applying for my team i'm going to ask them questions about sql because if you don't know sql and you're a data architect you're not a data architect and so like th those are some kind of baseline things that i think are useful because th that doesn't take that much effort to do you don't need a huge deep test to try to validate their depth i also think this is a place where references can come in handy um and and in you have to be careful and depending on your organization the way you check references but i find that if you can get a, a full picture of an individual and what their roles really were and how deep they went in those roles and how they were successful and validate that that was in fact their role, then that can be helpful as well. But again, it becomes this multiple, many facets to get to the truth in who it is that you're looking to bring on to a team. Um, I think, yeah, I, I mean, do you have any other tricks that you use in building analytics teams that help you not only just find the right candidates, but make sure there's some diversity on these teams and, and, and in your mind, why is that diversity so important? Yeah, sure. So um, let me comment a little bit on like uh, two different candidates and how some people might go for one and I would probably go for the other just as a thought experiment. Great. So um, I've worked in a number of different industries. So I remember one particular uh, conversation that comes to mind where I was asked kind of in the pre-sales process, it was a, a role as an external consultant, how many customer loyalty models I had done for regional casinos. <laughs> really quite specific. And I said, this would be the first one, right? 
you know, and I'd done a, a lot of customer loyalty stuff and I'd even uh, worked with some uh, casinos, but this was, as you can imagine, it was uh, one of those uh, smaller casinos that you see in a number of the areas of the U.S., typically Native American owned, not the big corporate casinos in Vegas. So that's the kind of situation they're describing. Okay. Their fear was they were going to spend so much time teaching me about how to run a regional casino that I wasn't going to be able to build a model. Okay. But so for that reason, they might say, if I'm a bank, I want 10 years of you doing models for a bank. If I'm a casino like they were, I want 10 years of that. What I would love to see is somebody that hasn't been skipping around exactly. Get that person with 10, 12 years of experience. This is the kind of person I want to run a team, for instance. Three years building models successfully at a bank. Three years building models successfully for a manufacturer. And then showing me that they could do it again, uh, insurance fraud or something like that. That's going to be an amazing candidate to me because they'll be able to acclimate to the new company and the new uh, company's customers um, in about a year or so and really be useful to me. You know, people forget that Bank of America and Wells Fargo and Citibank are different organizations. So you could even have a resume where you've been in banking for 10 years. And that doesn't mean that on day one, you understand the data. Certainly from a data management standpoint, we know that that's not the case. So I want to show, I want to, I want to be looking for talent on someone that's shown some diversity in the kinds of problems they can tackle because they're going to be, they're going to be the Swiss army knife on my, yeah. on my, on my team. So I think if you focus, it's got to be this technology. It's got to be this industry. It has to be five years or 10 years building towards this moment where everything you've done before now is uniform. That's that is not the person I'm looking for. I'm looking for the person who can handle anything that comes at them. Yeah, it's like it's like an, an acceleration metric on top of a top speed metric. Like it's how quickly have you shown you can adapt to a new situation is maybe even more important than how well do you know the situation that you're coming into? Because you, yep. because you probably don't. You you may have done something like it and that might teach you all of the bad habits that are, are, are kind of incumbent in that particular industry or that particular area. And and what we want is some new thinking. And so there is a, an interesting dynamic there. And, and, you know, I've been on both sides. I've been involved in, in the hiring process in pretty much every capacity I can think of. And just knowing how it goes under most circumstances, you identify a need, you get budget, you, you craft a position of generally what you think this role should look like you you associate that with certain skills and qualifications and then you talk to real people who are wildly divergent from that list like have you ever had a individual candidate who checks every single box exactly how you drew it up i haven't no now since i'm a modeler myself i'm the guy who builds the models that's always been my focus so you know as my career has matured um i become a more complete life cycle and I work in different industries, but you know, what, what I bring to the table for the most part is that I built a bunch of these, bunch of these models. Mm -hmm. So what about the, um, folks that support that? I think again, for some of the reasons that we've already talked about, like perhaps obsession with technology, what have you, a lot of times people don't look for that incredibly talented person that they already employ who's probably on the BI team, or they could be on the IT team. And they're looking for a way to make a lateral move or do something a little bit different. Maybe um, they just got a, a new boss and they think, wow, you know, running the team is not likely for me right now. This person is new in their position. Where can I go to grow? You look for that person that has a stack of data science books in their nightstand. They always exist. They're always there. Yeah. 
And I think because of the checkbox mentality that you described, people are always looking outside because they go, well, we don't have anybody that checks off all these checkboxes. And I have met dozens, if not hundreds of individuals at conferences that walk up to me dur during the break and ask for advice related to specifically this. And they say that they've been explicitly dissuaded from applying internally. Oh, you're not a data scientist. You're a BI person or what have you, right? And it's absolutely nuts because if you pair that outsider mentality, I thought that was very insightful, you know, to mention, you, you know, if you if you move it around industries a little bit, you you somewhat maintain that outsider mentality. I think part of my success as a consultant is that I've really tried to nurture that in me. I haven't stuck in one industry all these years. So if you get that outsider mentality in a modeler paired with a member of the team that's more focused on data and data prep, that was a lateral hire from another team that has been in that data warehouse for five years, but is new to the analytics team and is coachable and wants to be mentored. Now you've got the beginning of a diverse team, some from inside, some from outside, some coming from data science, some coming from allied fields. That's what you need if you're trying to build a half dozen people. Oh, and talk about when, when you're a hiring manager, you care a lot about the risk of bringing on any new individual, right? Like you, you realize that you're going to spend a ton of time with that person, getting them up to speed, that if they don't perform well, it's going to hurt the productivity of your team and all that. If you're bringing in somebody internally, you reduce that risk by a good amount because they're a known quantity, at least in a different function. But but at least there's some some known quantity there. They probably already have some exposure to the systems and the processes and how it works in your organization. So there's benefits there. But that also keeps the investment that your organization has made in that person growing and that they can still be reached when their old team has a, a, a issue that only they know how to answer. They're still in-house versus if we chase away our internal folks that are looking for more then they go outside the organization, we lose that investment, and we're starting over from square one, recruiting from the outside. And so I try to extend what you're talking about, not only as the hiring manager that's bringing somebody in, but as an advocate for the people on my team to say, first off, anybody who's on this team is here temporarily. I'm here temporarily. And we have this opportunity for some unknown amount of time to work together. And I want to be an advocate for your personal success here at the organization, ideally as, as part of this team, wherever your career needs to take you. I want to invest in our relationship as two humans who are happening to be in this place at this time. And I find that if I can do right by that, not only do I get more productive teams during the time that they're working with me, but I have better relationships and better opportunities in the future to circle back with folks or to, to continue to work with them as life goes on. And, and I just find that, you know, it's it's the right way to handle things. If you had some success with that, where by by approaching it the right way and leading the teams, you end up making your future hiring that much easier. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I can't resist mentioning a strategy that is the exact opposite of what you described. It's a disaster. And you would think you would think it's rare, but it's not rare at all. So here's the here's the situation. Uh, senior management concludes we need an analytics team. You know, we have a lot of other teams, but we don't have analytics. So let's start one from scratch. Let's get budget for the team. 
Um, boy, we need a unicorn because, you know, everybody's going to hire one of those unicorns that does all the checkboxes. You know, somebody with 10, 15 years of experience that's done, you know, everything that seems to be the perfect candidate. Yeah. They end up going through about a, a six or eight month job search minimum, right? Then they finally get their unicorn. Unicorn shows up with a headcount of five on paper because it's a new team, but no actual team members yet. Mm-hmm. What is that person going to do? They end up having to be a jack of all trades. They're pulled into meetings. Their badge isn't even dry yet, and they're getting pulled all over the place. 11 months into the job, which is now 18 or 19 months after the job search began, they're not feeling productive at all. A third of their time is spent working with HR, trying to hire. All the problems that we were talking about earlier are still the case. Now what what are you looking at? 12 months after hire, they've only managed to get two team members out of five, all of them. The person running the team and the two new team members are all from outside the organization. None of them know the data. All of them are still trying to establish relationships with the IT team because without it, they can't do their jobs. And then because data science is a pretty hot market, the person running that team is going, wow, this is really not fun. I still don't have a full team. They get an offer, they go. And what a disaster. Now you've got two brand new employees on a, on a half completed team and you're doing a job search again for a new senior data scientist disaster. And it's happening somewhere right now because it's commonplace enough that that is not just an occasional story. That is something that you hear about often. In fact, I would, I'd love to hear yeah, examples of that that people have because they're numerous. Oh, I, I mean, I, I can think of a half dozen places that I've seen that pattern occur and, and, it's not it's not pleasant and it just wastes so much energy and resources um for for no gain at all. I want to take I want to take this and twist it a little bit more cuz we've talked a lot about from the manager perspective from the leadership perspective which I think is great because there's a there's a, a bit of inside baseball happening here that a lot of people don't you know always have um purview to. So I think there's a lot of really good content so far but what advice do you have? So say if there's somebody who is on that BI team, or maybe they're in marketing, or maybe they're in finance, and they're really interested in going deeper into the data science and analytics and even you know the programming machine learning and AI space, which we haven't really talked about at all yet. You know, if they want to start going down that path, how do they start to transition? How do they start to move their ship in that direction so that at some point they can be part of one of these high-performing analytics teams? Um, I've got a very specific recommendation that I've seen work many, many times. Okay. So again, we're talking about somebody coming from the IT or the BI space. In other words, they're working with data, they're competent with data, mm-hmm. but the whole neural net, deep learning, decision tree thing is perhaps new. In fact, maybe they have quite a bit of experience in it, but evenings, you know, taking night classes right. or what have you, it's not on their resume. It's not proven yet. Right. Mm-hmm. The best thing that that person can do is go to their boss and say, because we know they're not going to be given a chance to run the analytics team. We've just been down that road. (laughs) So go to their boss and say, I hear that we're starting to work on some analytics projects. I've learned a little bit about this. I would really love to be the representative of IT that supports those projects. And what I found in many cases is it gets to the point where there's actually, they still report to IT. So that's still where they uh, find out if they get to go on training or conferences. That's where they have their reviews. That's where they talk about getting promoted and so on. They still belong to IT. But very often that rapidly grows within six months to 12 months. 
into a dotted line between them and the project lead. And I've seen this occur even when the project was seemingly a one-off where the person running the project was an external resource. For instance, I've, that's been me in some cases where this person was effectively reporting to me, even though I was an employee outside, but I was running the project and they were there to support the project. If you do that just once, you often can get your foot in the door and have a more prominent role on a follow-on project or a spin-off project or a second project. And I've seen numerous instances where two to three years later, that person has data science in their title somehow, and they're on a different team. Yeah. Oh, that's that's killer advice. That is the that is exactly what what people should be doing. And it's you know I I often talk in in different capacities and applies here as well is you know stop talking about it. Just start doing it. Find a way to elbow yourself into just helping something that's related to this first and then build upon it. And it's it, it just feels so overwhelming when you try to, to to map that path from wherever you're sitting today to this future of being involved with all this really cool stuff. And you realize you could take single steps towards that that are much more actionable than trying to say, how do I make this big leap? And, and the, the real way is to start stepping towards it and find what 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 can I do tonight in the studies that I may have a couple hours to work on? How do I step towards this thing that I find interesting? And as you learn more, you can start to create a, an understanding of where do you want to focus? Because there's so much now. There's Not everybody can specialize in everything. You have to figure out what it is you like to do. Um, and so I, I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time. Uh, talking about you know the the notion of how you go about training, especially you know right now we're still in the the throes of COVID. We're still in um, you know a remote working situation for a lot of us, and and certainly our interpersonal connections and conferences and things like that are are, are off the radar. Um, you know, coffee meetings and and the like, but. What what can people do to start learning? Like there's the obvious things like, you know, finding videos on YouTube or some you know books and, and things like that. But what other resources are out there, especially recent resources that that might help people, um, you know, get going down these kinds of paths? Well, you know, as um, uh, you know, uh, I've certainly done some work as a content producer myself, but also speaking as a consumer of these resources, you know, uh, one of the things that I've wanted to learn more about um, uh, during this uh, crazy and, and somewhat traumatic year that we're all having is a little bit more about video and audio, things that are really not my area at all, but just simply is more of a focus since in some cases I've given a keynote, you know, in a in a conference. And I thought, what are the little tips and tricks that maybe I never paid attention to that I can go? So I, I'm not just a content producer in this area, but a consumer of it as well. Mm -hmm. So I think the main thing is to distinguish between two fundamentally different styles when you're seeking out this content, you know? So you can have kind of the marketplace of ideas approach. That's going to be your YouTube and Udemy and so on, mm -hmm. where um, entrepreneurially minded data scientists, in fact, that, that's a whole new career now. You know, there are data science YouTubers that they, they complete their, uh, you know, uh, academic training in data science. And they say, I want to become a data science educator, you know, mm -hmm. the other, so you have that entrepreneurial approach. And the problem with that as a consumer is you have to try to figure out, is this person competent? Is this course the one that I need? And a lot of times you don't know either of those things when you're seeking them out, right. you know, so you can have a lot of false starts. 
The opposite approach, and it's not that they don't complement each other, but the opposite approach is something that's going to be a lot more curated, like, uh, you know, something that's going to have learning paths, more like a Coursera, you know, type of thing, or the content where I've produced a lot of content, LinkedIn Learning, which, um, you know, a, a lot of folks are, are familiar with, there are more folks familiar with LinkedIn than LinkedIn Learning, and yeah. sometimes it creates a little disconnect, like, the, what's the relationship there? Um there's a, a various number of uh, premium memberships to LinkedIn that I think people know about, especially if they're on the market or if they're hiring. And a lot of people don't know that if you have one of those premium memberships, you have to check because they have more than one flavor, you get LinkedIn learning for free. Oh. And LinkedIn learning has been around for a long time. It used to be lynda.com. Uh, and then it was bought by LinkedIn. And of course, LinkedIn itself has now been bought. It's part of, the, part of Microsoft. But there's an enormous amount of content and this is that curated style where um, they, they're basically trying to create a library and they're trying to hit all the topics that people have to do. But the problem with YouTube and Udemy, as valuable as they can be, you get all this overlap because if you have a hot topic, it's done by 40 people. And how are you supposed to decide which one of those 40 options to do? Sometimes it takes you a half hour just to decide what 15 minute video that you want to you know commit to right, right if something's more curated like that all the linkedin learning authors are essentially invited so it's more like writing a book where you're dealing with a publisher and then doing a proposal and then getting accepted and then doing the content and uh, this year of course is different because of uh, uh covid19 but um normally i would fly out to santa barbara which is not a bad place to have to go and <laughs> i'm in a booth i'm in a soundproof booth and my producer is on the other side of soundproof glass and there's pre-production and post-production it's almost like doing a tv show it's really something and i've been doing those since 2016 and i found them to be very rewarding but uh i think the quality is as high as it is in my opinion because it's heavily heavily curated what are the needs what are the gaps in the library how do we fill those gaps so that the, the library becomes a comprehensive collection of best of each topic yeah well, and I imagine like LinkedIn and learning is, is casting a wide net. There's probably lots of different topics available, lots of different kind of uh, learning plans that that you can go through. But I think that it's, it's you know, there is so much content availability out there. To your point, like you look at YouTube, I, I find it very difficult to find things to watch on YouTube just because of the selection is just overwhelming. Whereas my kids love YouTube all day long. They'll, they'll find stuff. And I'll be like, how did you find it? Oh, it just popped up. Okay. Um, but... I find that that curation and, and the efficiency of your learning process is very important. And I would suggest, like, to your point, I think finding good curated lists, like in the data management space, I do work with dataversity and we do um, training for specific data management types of things. And that those are great resources, LinkedIn Learning. And there's, there's other ones out there that will um, help you get to that kind of thing. But the one point I wanted to make is it, you, you brought me back to when I was studying for my GMAT exam decades ago. And I'll never forget how I had been going through this one set of books that I was uh, had bought to um to study for it and it just wasn't clicking I couldn't figure it out and it just I, I I don't even still to this day I don't know why I couldn't understand the way they were presenting the content in that but it just didn't work for me I picked up another smaller book and everything just gelled immediately. It just hit that right resonance with me in, in the way they approached those topics that I was able to, to pick up the material and understand it much faster than what I was slogging through before. And it's not better or worse. I think the other content was great. It just, it spoke to me in the way I needed to learn a little bit differently. And I would, and that would be my add to your, um, great suggestions is that 
recognize that what works best for you may not be what works best for everybody else. And if something's not gelling in a way you think like I should be getting this faster, you probably should. It's just the wrong particular set of content materials for you. There's probably alternatives out there that will work better for you. So don't be afraid to try some different things. I have a quick bit of very specific advice. It's almost like a learning style, you know, kind of a thing. I think particularly in data science, it's so critical that you seek out two kinds of data science knowledge. Knowledge of the concepts and the techniques more generally, you know, kind of a theory course, and then a practical, here's how you code it, here's how you click within the software. You have to do both. Yeah. And there's a tendency personality-wise to favor one over the other. I've been kind of a big... I've always been kind of a big picture guy. So I like I like the theory courses. I seek them out. And then, of course, I naturally need the practical stuff, too. But there are some folks sometimes that will fall into the trap that if I can write the code or if I can get the software to cooperate, I'm done with my learning. And you really have to seek out both. Then the trick is, on a personal basis, are you a theory followed by practice or practice followed by theory person? I think as individuals, we have to sort that out. But if you always seek out both and then figure out on a personal basis how to sequence it, then you'll be good. And you probably will get the learning variety that you were describing as well that you also need. That's great. And and so we're starting to get short on time. But I want to, before we close, do you see any patterns in what a lot of traditional data scientists teams need in terms of additional training like is there are there any patterns in areas that you think data scientists so for any data scientists listening to this what is an area that may not be obvious that they should probably spend some time beefing up their skills to be more successful as data scientists yeah it's a big topic but i've got some specific advice around this okay so first thing you have to understand that even though um you know i'm a mid-career guy, I'm just a, you know, early 50s, so I've got a lot of years left doing this, that I have been doing it since my late 20s, so naturally I've seen some changes. And when I was starting out, knowledge of statistics was table stakes. It really was. And to be honest, when I was starting out, it was overemphasized. Mm-hmm. And my statistics friends, I'm sure, will forgive me for this. The statisticians sometimes tend to be a little fussy. Everything's going to be perfect. <laughs> So, you know, they're somewhat more prone to analysis paralysis, perhaps, than other people that are trained in other areas. And what you would have is this overly complicated model that never get deployed. And that was a real problem. People recognize that that was a problem. Mm -hmm. But the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction that people will take an R coding class in lieu of a statistic class. And I end up finding in some cases they have almost no statistics knowledge they know how to write the commands, but they know almost none of the theory behind it. And I think that's a problem. So stats might only be 10 or 20% of the pie, but it's an important 10 or 20%. So don't ignore that. Then the other thing that I would say is that since the stats-focused uh, you know, uh, data scientist of 20 years ago never deployed, people really wanted to address that problem. So that's part of the rise of Python. And it's a good thing because now the feeling is if you're a coder, you're going to be able to deploy. But, you know, the modeling phase and the deployment phase are not identical. So what ends up happening sometimes is I think people are so code focused that they forget about the fact that we're solving business problems with this code. We're not, we're not solving math problems with data science. We're solving business problems with data science that happens to involve some math. So 
I find that there's too little emphasis on the big picture. So for instance, when I was starting out, we'd all learn the cross-industry standard process for data mining. That acronym is CRISPM, but that, that was just part of your training. You would not just learn the mechanics of the software, whatever your tool of choice was, but the big picture of the process, how to run a project as part of the training. That's been largely neglected as well. And if you've got both of those gaps, you're not going to be effective. If you know zero stats and you know zero big picture, all the coding skill in the world is not going to get you to a successful conclusion. Yeah, I think that that is as well put. And I think that, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're out of time and, and mm -hmm. I just, I, there's so much more I think we could talk about. So hopefully we can have you back on the show again soon. Um, I would enjoy Cause it. I think there's, there's so much useful content in, in, in this week's episode. So, so Keith, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your wisdom with us. It's, it's been, it's been awesome. I really did enjoy it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And so thank you all for watching or listening today. You'll find links and more information about today's topic in the show notes. Subscribe to our show on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Algman.com to learn more about Algman Data Leadership and the many ways we can help you become a data leader. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact. 